Good morning, everybody. Good to see you all here. Thank you for being here. And uh, I really mean that. I was thinking, looking across this room, and so I was preparing to come up here, and I was thinking, I know that some of you are firemen and policemen and work at Boeing, and you worked last night. I know that for a fact, and you just got off your shift and you're here. So thank you for being here, and thank you to everybody for the sacrifices you're making for being here. I'm glad you're here. Um, Recently, I was standing in line at Starbucks. I was meeting somebody. And as I was standing in line, I saw a little poster that they had hanging next to the cash register. You know, sometimes they change those posters out and put different quotes on there. And the poster had a quote by uh, Lady Gaga written on it, which said, don't you ever let a soul in the world tell you that you can't be exactly who you are. I thought about that for a minute. And this, on one level, I kind of liked it, but uh, as, as I realized the influence that this Starbucks had on teenagers, because it's one that is frequented by many teenagers, I wondered how many young people would be reading that and kind of internalize those words as authoritative truth for their life and for their, their worldview. Because my guess is that when many people read those somewhat obscure words, as you see on the screen, what they actually hear is, don't you ever let a soul in the world tell you that you can't be exactly how you are. How you are. Or in other words, don't let anybody tell you that there's ever anything wrong with you, or that you, you are sinful. Don't, um, don't think that somehow you have been contaminated by sin. All of your thoughts and feelings and behaviors are perfectly acceptable because that's just how you are. That's who you are. And, and not only are you perfect just how you are, but also nobody has the right or authority to tell you differently. So don't listen to anyone else but you. Follow your heart. Don't deny yourself anything that your heart leads you to. As I thought about that, I, I thought about how totally different Jesus' words are for us. Luke 9, 23, 25, he says, it says, and Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So Jesus tells us the exact opposite of Starbucks and Lady Gaga. Jesus says, if you want true life, then deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. That's a paradoxical statement, right? But what Jesus says is that sin has messed with you. Sin, or disobeying God, this world is not the way it's supposed to be. Sin has corrupted you and everybody else, your mind, your body, your soul, because I am your God who made you and to whom you are accountable. I don't want you to follow every inclination of your heart now. If you want to follow me, if you want to know me, then you must die to every feeling and desire and habit that I and habit that I call sin. So I don't think, needless to say, Starbucks is going to be putting up quotes from Jesus anytime soon, except maybe really out of context quotes. Denying yourself in order to glorify Jesus Christ does not scratch what most people's itching ears want to hear. 
uh, identifying one God and as the only God and as the only God worthy of your total obedience, it really doesn't sell coffee well. Uh, it doesn't make you many friends in our culture. But God's greatest desire for us isn't to sell a lot of coffee or to make a lot of money or to uh, tell everybody that you're cool with God exactly how you are and you don't need to do anything or change anything about yourself. God's greatest desire actually is not for us to glory in ourselves, but to glory in his son Jesus. And the path of glorifying Jesus is the path of putting to death our self-centered desires every day. It's the path of mortifying or putting to death our sins and our, and our flesh. Romans 8:13 says, "For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live." So the gospel tells us this, that Jesus the Lord not only wants us to be with him, we get that one right pretty well, but Jesus also wants us to become like him. And if we're to become like him, then we must travel the same path he traveled, the path of the cross. And as we've seen in the book of Acts, uh, the apostle Paul knew firsthand what it meant to walk this path of the cross, to die to himself in order to follow Jesus. And we're going to look at Acts 21 this morning. And as we do that, the author, Luke, he is describing Paul's final journey now to Jerusalem, where he would be arrested again and then be transferred around to different prisons throughout the Roman Empire until he was finally executed. So um, we're going to look at that. Before we do that, um, well, let's open that. Let's open up. If you have your Bible with you, open up to Acts 21 with me. And the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible, please let us know. We'd love to give you one or tell you where you can get a good one. And um, it is in the New Testament. If you don't know where Acts is, uh, you can look at your table of contents. And we're in chapter 21, verse 1. Let's ask the Lord to help us, you guys. Dear Lord, we uh, thank you for this word that you've given us today, and we ask that you would use it now to help us love you. Denying ourselves for the glory of your name sounds crazy to a world that does not love you and revere you and fear you. So we ask that uh, if any of that kind of irreverent, dishonoring thinking is in our own hearts that you would purge that from us and that you would replace that with a great joy in our hearts in you that you would satisfy our hearts that we would find what we've always been looking for in you that we would be filled with great joy in knowing you and your salvation and what you've done for us and what you're doing and what you're going to do we ask as we have this time together that uh we would just be able to focus and soak this in, guard us against all evil now. We pray this in your powerful name, Jesus, amen. So before I read this here, let, let me quickly just set up the context because that'll help us. Uh, what is going on here is the Apostle Paul is wrapping up his third missionary journey. And his long-term plan now is to travel to Spain to preach the gospel there. 
which is a long ways away from where he's at in the Mediterranean. But before he goes there, he's determined to go, uh, return to Jerusalem on the eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And in fact, Paul says that the Holy Spirit has constrained him or obligated him to return to Jerusalem. He has collected an offering among the churches in this area called Macedonia, uh, which generously gave a big offering to help the Christians living in poverty in Jerusalem. And so Paul has at least eight other men who are accompanying him and this big offering to keep it safe as they go to Jerusalem. And as these men are on their way to Jerusalem, what they're doing is making the most of their trip by visiting Christians and churches along the way there and encouraging, encouraging them and, and strengthening them. And so I want to show you a quick map because what we're going to do is we're going to read a number of places that most of us don't know, and, and uh, including me. And so I looked at this map and I'm like, ah, let's, let's remember these are real places. Um, and so it, remember he was talking to the Ephesian elders in Miletus. And then now this is their path back. Basically, he goes to this place called Kos, and then Rhodes, and then Patara. So uh, we'll find, see in the text that he had to take a smaller, he took a smaller boat when he was closer to land. Then he switches boats because he's going to be taking a big, he's going across the big sea here. Okay, and so from Patara, he says they passed, they could see Cyprus. And then they go to this area here called Phoenicia. And then they go to the city of Tyre, Ptolemais, and Caesarea. So that's, that's where it's at in our world. That's uh, where it was at in his world. And so when we read this now, you can kind of visualize that hopefully a little bit better. Um, let's read Acts 21, 1 to 16, and then we'll go back through it. This is the physician Luke writing who was accompanying uh, Paul. And when he, we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kaz, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to, see, uh, or coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, 
Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. So the author here, uh, Luke, writes that on their way to Jerusalem, these men visited Christians in at least three towns, right? Tyre, Ptolemaeus, and Caesarea. They stayed with the disciples in Tyre for one week. They stayed with the disciples in Ptolemaeus. Uh, okay, real quick, sorry. They stayed in Tyre for a week. Why? Because that's how long it took for the ship to unload its cargo. Then they stayed with the Christians in Ptolemaeus for one day. And then they stayed with the Christians in Caesarea, it says, for many days. Probably because they had some time to spare before the, the festival in Jerusalem started, the Pentecost festival. The winds had probably been favorable for them, and so they had a little time to work with. Now, the common thread between these three churches, Tyre, Ptolemaeus, and Caesarea, is that they each showed generous hospitality to Paul and to his crew. They each cared a lot about Paul, and they each wanted Paul to stay alive. <laughs> And what makes this passage difficult, if you see it, if you're looking at it closely and maybe you've wrestled with it before, what makes it difficult uh, in one way is to interpret uh, what it means that there are several spirit-filled Christians here who appear to disagree about the instructions the Lord has given, about whether or not Paul should go to Jerusalem. And specifically here, there are four human voices weighing in on Paul's plan to go to Jerusalem. First, you got Paul's voice who said in Acts 20, 22 to 23, and now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Second is the voice of the Christians in Tyre. Acts 21, 4 says, and having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Third, there's the voice of the prophet named Agabus here. Acts 21, 10 to 11 says, While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And fourth, there's the voice of Paul's travel companions and the Christians in Caesarea Acts 21.12 says, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. So some people uh, read today's passage and conclude that it's primarily about how to discern God's will for your future, especially when you're getting different guidance from different people. I'm not convinced that discerning God's will is what the passage is primarily about, um, now, I only spent six days studying the passage. I could be very wrong. But in this passage, I don't see Paul asking for people's opinions about whether or not he should go to Jerusalem. I see Paul telling people that the Lord has already constrained him to go to Jerusalem, and then they respond to Paul with contradicting words of guidance. So it appears to me that the thrust of this passage is actually about Paul's unrestrainable desire to glorify the name of the Lord Jesus, no matter what it costs him. Paul is certain that the Holy Spirit is compelling him to go to Jerusalem. And so Paul wants to obey God, the Holy Spirit, even if he dies for doing so. 
And, and that being said, there's, there's no doubt here that discerning between different voices is part of the picture. So before we go on and talk about taking up our crosses to follow Jesus, let's answer three questions here about verses 4 to 12. First, is God contradicting himself by giving different message to these spirit-filled Christians? Is God contradicting himself? And the answer is, is no. God is not contradicting himself. Uh, God is not giving contradictory words of guidance to Paul and to these people. God never contradicts himself. God's word never contradicts itself. There are paradoxes, sure. There are things that are hard for us to understand, yeah, but God is never illogical. God, God never lies. You could read Psalm 119 or Hebrews 6.18 about this. It says, it is impossible for God to lie. So he's not going to say one truth and then another truth that directly contradicts that truth. So, so however you interpret this passage, viewing God as a liar or as a miscommunicator is not an option. And that brings us then to the second question. What are the different ways we can responsibly interpret this passage? What, what is going on here? So let me quickly list a few ways that some Christians interpret this passage. One option is that God did at one point constrain Paul to travel to Jerusalem, but now God's doing a mid-course correction, and he's telling Paul through these various Christians not to go to Jerusalem anymore, and so Paul disobeys God by continuing to go to Jerusalem. That's one option. A second option is that when Paul heard the Spirit constrain him to go to Jerusalem, he was not truly constrained by the Holy Spirit, but by his own spirit. And so when it says he was constrained by the Spirit, it's talking about his own spirit. So Paul's whole voyage then to Jerusalem would be driven by his own spirit and not necessarily by God's spirit. A third option is that the Christians entire were correct to understand that Paul would suffer in Jerusalem, but they were incorrect to tell Paul not to go to Jerusalem because he would suffer. The fourth option is that the prophet Agabus gives an incorrect prophecy. Uh, Agabus prophesied that the Jews would bind Paul and then deliver him over to the Gentiles. But what later happened is that the Gentile Romans arrested and bound Paul with chains, not the Jews. So some Christians conclude then that Agabus' prophecy either was not from the Holy Spirit or that he incorrectly communicated the message from the Holy Spirit. A fifth option is that the Christians in Tyre and Caesarea were both wrong, and they were led by their own spirits and not by the Holy Spirit. So, a lot of options. And uh, these are some of the main ways that Christians have interpreted, interpreted this passage. So as of Sunday morning, August 18, 2019, here's my best interpretation, okay? Um, the Holy Spirit did compel Paul to go to Jerusalem. And the Holy Spirit is continuing to compel Paul to go to Jerusalem. Also, the Holy Spirit told Paul to expect to suffer for his faith in Jerusalem. Acts 20, 20 to 24, this is what Paul told the Ephesian elders. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me, but I did not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course 
and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So, Paul is right to obey the Lord by going to Jerusalem, no matter what awaits him there. Okay, then what do we do with the Christians in Tyre? Well, the Christians in Tyre were right to understand that Paul would suffer and possibly die in Jerusalem. However, they were wrong to think that the Holy Spirit did not want Paul to continue to go to Jerusalem. And then in Caesarea, Agabus, the prophet's prophecy, appears to me to be generally correct. Now, I'm not a prophet analyst, okay? So I know that there were strict Old Testament criteria by which you judged the accuracy of a prophecy. But it appears to me that it was generally correct, because even though the Jews did not arrest him, it was the Jews who first seized him. And they attacked him until the Romans arrested him. Uh, In fact, in uh, Acts chapter 28, Paul later testifies in court that uh, how, how this arrest went down, and he says that he was delivered as a prisoner from the Jews into the hands of the Romans. So, that being said, it was incorrect for Paul's travel companions and the Christians in Caesarea to conclude that Paul should not go to Jerusalem because of the danger awaiting him there. So their concern for Paul was the same as anyone who doesn't want a loved one to come to harm. However, if it was God's will for Paul to go to Jerusalem, then it would be wrong for anyone to prevent him from going there. And because Paul refuses to obey them instead of God, they ultimately find peace in this by what? It says they basically hand him over to the will of the Lord. Acts 21.14 says, And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. So in summary, it appears here that Paul and all these Christians are hearing from God that Paul is going to suffer for his faith when he gets to Jerusalem. But the fact that these people are urging Paul not to go there is a reflection of their feelings for him. They have not received a different directive from the Lord for Paul. The third question then about this passage is what does it say about prophets and prophecy and spirit-filled Christians who get different messages or give different messages from God or from their spirits or whatever? Well, no matter how you interpret this passage, I think there are a few important takeaways about prophecy most Christians can agree on. First, is that the only flawless and totally authoritative prophecy is God's word. (laughs) The New Testament scriptures were written by the apostles as the Holy Spirit carried them along. There is no prophetic word from God, either from the first century or the 21st century, that can override or contradict the Bible. Second, whether you believe that the gift of prophecy ended in the first century or whether you believe it continues today, prophecies spoken by Christians other than the apostles are open to error. Okay? Even if God gave a Christian a prophetic message to share, it is very possible that he or she might communicate that prophecy incorrectly. So we should never understand a self-proclaimed prophecy spoken by a modern Christian to be inerrant or even necessarily from God. 
A person may very likely be speaking from their own spirit and not from God's spirit. This is why we must use scripture to analyze the truth of every word spoken by a pastor or a prophet or a mentor or every other Christian and non-Christian we know. We use scripture to analyze the truth of messages. The only inerrant written revelation of God is found in our 66 books of the Bible, period. Now in the remainder of our time here, what I want to focus on is Paul's passion for the glory of God's name. That's what I think the thrust of the passage is about, and that's what is incredible here. Verses 13 to 15, it says, Then Paul answered them, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Think about that. Think about that phrase. Paul says, I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die. In Jerusalem, for what? For the name of the Lord. Now it's important to note here that Paul's not determined to go to Jerusalem in order to suffer for the Lord. Okay, that's not what's driving it. He's not saying there is supernatural salvific merit that I'm going to earn by suffering for Jesus. Christians have wrongly applied that through centuries by literally putting them, making their bodies physically suffer, whipping themselves, hurting themselves, thinking that somehow this is God glorifying and this earns me merit with God. Rather, what's important to see is that what's, it, what's driving Paul wanting to go to Jerusalem? Obedience. He wants to obey the Lord. He's constrained by the Holy Spirit. He doesn't, listen, whether he goes and just hangs out in Jerusalem and sees his friends or that's God glorifying if he's obeying the Lord. Or if the outcome is that he goes to Jerusalem, he's arrested. That's God glorifying as long as he's obeying the Lord. So Paul wants to glorify the Lord by obeying him. Paul wants to love the Lord by obeying him. This is directly connected to Jesus' instructions for us. In John 14, 15, when he said at his last supper, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Short sentence. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. The way that we love the Lord is by seeking to keep his commandments. None of us will do it perfectly, right? We, that's obvious. Read the whole Bible. That's what the whole story is about. That's why we need a Savior. But Jesus says, if you love me, you're going to want to keep my commandments and work at that. Now, in Paul's case, he was certain that the Holy Spirit was, what was he certain that his commandment was, in this case, to go to Jerusalem, to take this offering to Jerusalem and be there for Pentecost. He wanted to love the Lord by obeying him no matter what it cost him. Man, as I read that, <laughs> as I really dig into that, I mean, you think about everything Paul's been through already. He's been beaten. He's been near death. He's got all his friends saying, you don't have to go. Don't do this. But he's like, no, the, the Lord has constrained me to do this. I need to obey him this way. I want to love God like Paul loved God. Don't you? <laughs> Not just being convinced of what God wants him to do, but actually having the courage to do it. 
I want to be so confident in Christ. This was my personal reflection as I read this. I want to be so confident about who I am in Christ. I want to be so passionate about Jesus. I want to be so joyful about what he's done for me and what he's doing and what he's going to do that there's nothing I won't do to gladly exalt his name. So one obvious question that verse 13 begs is, Christian, are you willing to die for the name of the Lord Jesus? That's an obvious question. That's a question many of us Christians hope to answer. Yes, I will die for Jesus. But for those of us Christians who live in America at this time in history, it's probably a difficult question to answer honestly. Because unless we go on a dangerous mission trip to evangelize in another part of the world, we do not really face the daily prospect of dying for the name of Jesus like many of our brothers and sisters in Christ do every day. It's, it's a question we don't really know the answer to and we wouldn't really know the answer to until we're faced with the very real prospect of dying for Jesus. But I, but I hope that many of us believe that we would be willing to die for Jesus' name. I think a more realistic question for many of us to ask is, and a harder question to ask, is are you willing to suffer to follow Jesus? See, it it might actually be easier for you to say you're willing to die for Jesus because you know your suffering would be temporary and then you go to heaven. But let's just imagine you live for another 20 years. Are you willing to today and for the next 20 years obey Jesus with your life even if that means you will suffer? Or to put it another way, are you willing for the next 20 years to make great sacrifices of your time and your priorities and your money so that you can follow Jesus. Even if making those sacrifices means you, your family, your kids, don't get to buy many things you'd like to buy for yourself. And it means you don't get to use all your time to focus on yourself and your hobbies. And it means you, don't, you won't get to participate in everything that your non-believing neighbors participate in because your priorities are different from theirs because Jesus' priorities are different from the world's. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the, the famous Christian pastor in Germany during World War II wrote, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Jesus commands his followers to take up his cross, he's telling them to take up your death. Because following Jesus, seeking his kingdom, um, his church, his people, his friendship, his will in our lives before everything else requires, it just requires that we die to ourselves. Following Jesus requires that we die to the standards of success and achievement defined by this world. You hear that? We give it up. Our reputation, our success is no longer our success if we've been crucified with Christ. Our lives now are simply for the glory of Jesus, whatever that means for us. And dying to ourselves daily, in many ways, is much harder than dying physically as a martyr for Jesus. The the paradox of the Christian life is that it is only when we die to ourselves and to our sinfulness and to our self-centered desires will we truly live. 
Only when we crucified the selfish thoughts and feelings and actions of our flesh, what do I want? Will we glorify God with the resurrected thoughts and feelings and actions that bring God the most glory because we're asking what does God want? C.S. Lewis wrote this. This is a great quote I read this week. A crucifixion of the natural self is the passport to everlasting life. Nothing that has not died will be resurrected. Hear that? Nothing that has not died will be resurrected. What does that mean? All of us, all of the entirety of our lives must die for the glory of God if that's to be resurrected to new life with the glorified thoughts and feelings and affections that Jesus wants us to have. This is, of course, a simply a, a restatement of Jesus' words. Let's read it again, 9, 23 to 25. And he said, uh, Luke 9, 23 and 25, he said to all, if, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So what was the cross? Just a reminder. It was the worst possible execution device the Romans had devised. Right? That's what that means. Take up your suffering and death and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? I read a quote this week by Keith Green in a sermon he wrote, and it, it basically put, it said it succinctly, it said, when you make decisions, are you primarily thinking about life on earth or your life for eternity? Your decisions, are they primarily about how it's going to affect your life on earth, or your life forever. If you, if you believe that you're an eternal being, Jesus' Jesus's desire for us is not only for us to be with him, but to become like him. That is why God says over and over in his word, be holy as I am holy. That's how we glorify God. And the path to holiness, the path to Christ-likeness is the path of death to self and life in Christ. And Paul understood this. In Galatians 2.20, he wrote, I have been crucified with Christ. That's what it means when I, when I trusted in Jesus, when he made me born again, I'm a new life. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So this life, I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then in his letter to the Philippians, chapter 3, 7 to 11, Paul says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, 
becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And when Paul says there in verse 11 that by any means possible he hopes to attain the resurrection from the dead, he does not mean that doing certain works will somehow attain for him eternal life. Paul is crystal clear in his letters that the only way to receive eternal life is not to trust in your own works, but to trust only in the perfect work of Jesus Christ, God, who died for you because he loves you. What Paul is saying here in verse 11 is that whatever road, uh, he's saying whatever road he has to take to glorify God until he meets him face to face, that's the road he wants to take. Whatever road it is, Lord, for you to make me like you, to bring you glory, that's the road I want to take. So Christian, what does it look like for you to die to yourself for the glory of Jesus' name where you live and in your life and at your job? What will it look like for you to die to yourself and your career aspirations? Not not that having aspirations is a bad thing, but what does it look like to put Jesus as number one priority? What does it look like for you to die to yourself with your reputation? What what does it look like for you to die to yourself in your hobbies? What does it look like for you to die to yourself in your marriage? What does it look like for you to die to yourself with your sexuality, your temptations? What, is it, what does it look like for you to, to, to die to yourself with your neighbors? What does it look like for you to die to yourself with your time, which is limited? What does it look like for you to die to yourself with your money? What does it look like for you to die to yourself when you're with your family? And probably more important than those questions is this question. What's going to make you want to die to yourself for the glory of Jesus' name? How can you make sacrifices and serve your family and your neighbors and die to yourself for Jesus' name without being exhausted and bitter about it? Without feeling like it's a giant burden on your shoulders? How can you actually be filled with joy to do this? Joy to obey the Lord no matter what he calls you to do. See, you can't create in yourself a desire, <laughs> this desire. You can't, you can't create in yourself a desire to put your wants, your temptations to death. You can't do it. You can't make yourself want something you don't want. Instead, you need God to give you supernaturally a heart that wants this that wants to obey him in, every, in everything you do, that wants to enjoy him, that, that is content with him alone, that, that's content with knowing him, that wants to worship him, that wants to know him more. You cannot possibly muster yourself up enough to want to die to yourself, even if it's for the glory of God. So, to the one who is here who maybe doesn't even know where you, you don't even know where you stand with God or you're, maybe you're just learning and seeking Jesus. If you're here, I'm glad you're here. And 
like really, we're, we're thankful you're here and have come today. If you've never believed the gospel message that, if you've never heard this, like this is news to you, that you're, you are a sinner like the rest of us. That you actually need God to forgive you of this sin and to free you from it because it's got eternal repercussions for you. If, if, if you never heard that the only way to, to have this done for you is by trusting in God's son Jesus who died on the cross for you so that you don't have to die for eternity. If you've never believed that before, then this is what Jesus says. Believe in me and be saved. <laughs> it's simple. Believe, believe me. Because you've got a lot of voices in your life media, YouTube, whatever, media, voices, Facebook, a lot of voices have different angles. Whose voice, are, whose voice are you going to listen to as the authoritative word for your life? And Jesus says, truly, truly, I tell you the truth. Believe me and you will be saved. Trust in me and you will be saved. And if you believe for the first time today, that's that's an unbelievably awesome thing. So please let us know about that because what that means then is that God has given you this desire for him. You're not gonna believe if you don't want God. If you're just hearing me tell you want God, you're not gonna want God if I tell you to want God. You need God to give you a heart that wants God. So if, he, if you want God and if you believe in Jesus, you trust in him, be baptized and join our church and live for Jesus Christ. See, this, is, this, is, this whole idea of this new heart is exactly what the Bible has been unfolding from the Old Testament. That there was a prophet named Ezekiel who prophesied this a long, long time, even before Jesus was born on earth. In chapter 36, 26 to 27, this was the prophecy he received from the Lord. And I will give you a new heart. This is talking to God's saved people. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So looking at that, how much of it is about you and what you do? It's about God and what he do does for you because he's gracious. So if you trust in Jesus, if you believe his gospel, then he has removed from you your unbelieving heart of stone and given you a believing heart of flesh. He has put in you his Holy Spirit to cause you now to walk in his ways. Praise God. Now, if you're a Christian here and you've been a Christian a long time and, and you know, like I do, that you need to continue to die to yourself and to live for Christ, how do you do that? How do you be filled now with a desire to deny yourself and to take up your cross for the glory of Jesus' name. I would say this, no matter how many years you've been, how many years it's been since you accepted Jesus or how many years it's been that you've been following Jesus, it is never too late to beg the Lord to light your heart on fire for him and he'll do it. So first and foremost, you must plead with God whose spirit lives in you to make you alive to him again to give you a heart that delights in him. Ask the Lord to tenderize your heart. 
Ask him to set you on fire like when you first believed. Ask him to give you a great joy in living for him. Ask him to help you obey his commands. If you want to live by the Spirit, then you need the power of the Spirit to live by the Spirit. You can't manufacture that desire or that ability on your own. And in addition to praying to God for that desire, you on your part keep seeking him the way he's already clearly instructed you in scripture. So keep praying to him. Keep talking to him. And please, and this is one of the things I thought about this week, be real with God. When you talk to God, when you pray, listen, we're not telling you to, God's not telling you to write this fancy prayer with language that sounds like it's from the 17th century. That's what I want. God wants you to be real with him. You know why? God already knows every secret in your life already. He knows everything that's going on, even things your spouse doesn't know, even things your kids don't know, your neighbors don't know. God knows it all. So it's, it's really kind of insulting if you come to him and try to put on airs and be somebody else. Just be real with God. Thank you that we have a God who wants us to come to him and be real. Keep being real with God and keep reading his word so that you can learn to obey him. I mean, if you want to obey, if Jesus says, love me by obeying me, how do you learn to obey him? Well, you don't just say, well, I think that this would be obeying God. I think this would be obeying God. No, you say, what did God say? Read Jesus' words. What does it look like to obey him? Stay close to the word. And, and, and ponder, spend time meditating, thinking about the amazing truths of the gospel and what it says about God and what it says about you and how God feels about you and who you are in Jesus now. I'm not talking about once a week do this. I mean, like, may this be at the forefront of our minds all the time. God, help me. Because every other voice in this world is, is beating me down, and telling me lies and confusing me. I need truth. And God, I want you to speak your truth to me because you're my master. <laughs> I want to listen to your word most. Surround yourself with people who are going the direction you want to go toward Jesus, toward his righteousness, toward eternal life. And I get that you don't get to pick like who you work with. I get that. But in the other areas of life, are you hanging out with people? Are you surrounding yourself with people who are helping you, making you want Jesus more? Who are strengthening your faith in Jesus? That's one of the reasons community groups are so important. I just don't know how else to do that except to discipline ourselves every week to say, I'm doing this this week. Every week, I'm in a community group. And I know there's a million other things I could do with my time. But this is what I want for me and my family most. And it means I have to reorganize everything in my life so that I can do this. And I know that not everybody can, can be in a community group, but I'm saying that's one of the ways it looks for me. And it means my kids make sacrifices. They can't participate in things that, that other friends get to. And I can't participate in things that my, my friends get to participate in. But what I really want more than that is, man, 
listen, Jesus said, you can have the whole world. What is it, what's the matter? What does it matter if you have the whole world and it leads you to death? I need life. I've got enough stuff beating me down. I need people pointing me to hope and life in Jesus Christ, to the truth. That's what I need. So what you see here now is it's hard to not see this, that Paul, what is specifically happening? Paul has set his face to go to Jerusalem to suffer for the glory of God. Just like Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem to suffer for the glory of God even when his friends told him not to go. But it's in Jesus' death for us that we have eternal salvation and hope. It's not in our death for him that we have hope. Daily dying to ourselves, although right and glorifying to God, does not have saving power for us. What great news that is, you guys. That changes the whole ball game here on the catalyst for making us want to follow Jesus, that we are not saved by our dying for God. We are saved by God dying for us. May the Holy Spirit use that truth in our lives to catalyze our hearts to love him so much that we want to obey him whatever it costs us. And whatever we may lose on earth for the glory of Jesus' name, may we remember this truth in Romans 8, 16 to 17, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Would you guys please stand up with me? And uh, let's close our time in prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you for this passage. There's heavy stuff in here, and just we could meditate on this and chew on this, God, for this passage alone for a long time. Thank you for appointing it for this day. I pray, Lord, that you would help us today to, to meditate on this as we, as we kind of get nearer to the end of our summers and look to the fall and think about what our lives are going to look like this season that we would ask ourselves, how can I do this in the way that obeys Jesus? How can I die to myself and glorify Christ most in my life? Oh, we know that suffering comes to all of us, Lord, Christian and non-Christian, we're specifically talking in this passage, though, God, about suffering for the glory of your name. And it's not in suffering that somehow is, uh, that suffering itself is somehow makes us more elite Christians or something like that. It's, we just want to obey you, God. Whatever, whatever may come, help us to obey you when we're sitting in our, when we're on our work breaks when we're behind our computer screens, when we are coaching, when we're preparing our classrooms, when we're doing drills with our, our, our peers at work, whatever we're doing, God, help us uh, to die to ourselves so that we might glorify you. 
Thank you, thank you, thank you, Lord, that uh, our glory is not in our dying for you, but in your dying for us. We pray this for the glory of your name, Jesus. Amen.